Amen. Amen. So tonight we come to the Calvary distinctive of the supremacy of love. This is the 11th distinctive that we've looked at. And I believe it's a great blessing for us that many churches, many denominations, if you would look at maybe a list of their distinctives, perhaps it would be a lot about theology, a lot about doctrines. We've gone through a lot of doctrine, uh, doctrines and theology through these first 10 distinctives. For other churches, maybe their distinctives would have to deal with how tight or not tight the pastor's jeans are, right? Uh, for some other churches, maybe it's the lighting or the style of worship, and that would be this is what makes us distinct. For Chuck Smith and for Calvary Chapel, love being at the center of the ministry and of the ministers, this is a distinctive of our church, and I think it's so important, and hopefully it's a, it's a blessing to you as it is to me. It made me think of one thing, because the Word of God, it is so powerful and so important. Church, people being able to have their lives changed by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the Word, it's so important, and it's such a blessing to be a part of. But oftentimes, the people dispensing the Word of God or the ministry of the Word of God, because of their actions, because of their temperament, because of their lack of love, it can put a damper on God and on His work. There are many of us here tonight that this isn't our first church. For some of us it is, that's great, that's awesome. But for some of us, we've left other ministries and other churches. And a grand theme that would affect each of these churches is that love was not a central focus. The love of God was not the central focus. And whether it was a power play, whether it was out of emotion, whether it was out of bad doctrine, whether it's they kick you out and then they tell everybody that now you're a witch doctor because you're no longer a part of the church. Love is not the center theme and focus there. It made me think of ice cream. Now, Pastor Tony, he told the, the men that I think about food a lot and I like food a lot, right? But there's always joy when you go out to eat ice cream, unless you're lactose intolerant. That's a separate teaching, right? You go out to get ice cream, and it's joy, it's exciting, it's fun. But I don't know if you've ever gone to an ice cream shop, and you get there, and the person behind the counter doesn't look like they should be serving ice cream, right? They're cranky, they're mad, they're angry, and all of a sudden your great excitement ugh, has a little bit of a damper. And then all of a sudden you see signs everywhere that say no taste testers, right? And then now you're even more anxious. Instead of being excited, now you're anxious. My $10 ice cream, what if I pick the wrong flavor, right? What if I don't like this decision now? What if I have to eat this gross ice cream and take these bad calories because I couldn't taste it? It no longer becomes exciting. It no longer becomes a blessing, but it becomes a stressful situation. And I believe when we don't display the love of Christ and we can try to give the truth of God's word to other people, but if we don't display the love of Christ, as we'll read later on in 1 Corinthians 13, it profits us nothing. You're there in John chapter 13, verse 34 through 35. And it tells us, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Again, Jesus Christ 
makes this as such an important focus for his disciples and for us. That our new commandment, our new charge, our new marching orders from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is that we love one another. And, and to what measure of love? As Christ has loved us. That's how we are to go out and love one another. He tells us in verse 35, this is how people are going to know that we are truly his disciples if we have love for one another. Chuck Smith in this chapter, he says, All our doctrinal orthodoxy and understanding of the scriptures are of no value without love. Though I understand the great mysteries, things like the mysteries of the Godhead, the sovereignty of God, or the responsibility of man, if I don't have love, they are worthless. If I'm just getting in people's faces and working to make them see and believe my side, my doctrinal purity profits me nothing. It's all worthless without love. It's a great question to ask yourself tonight. Are you displaying the love of Christ to others, to your family members, to the family in the church, and even to your enemies? Are you displaying the love of Christ? In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, Paul tells us that knowledge puffs up, but love, it edifies. The love of Christ, it edifies one another. It builds up one another. It's been said, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I don't know if you've ever had a coach or a teacher, or a family member, and they're just riding you, right? They're just telling you everything you're doing wrong, and how you're messing up, and only if you'd fix this, and only if you'd fix that, but you sense there's no love or care there. They're just always bombarding you with the truth, and where you're wrong, and the truth, and where you're wrong, and it, it doesn't affect any change in you. It just creates even more resistance, if we're being honest. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And if there was any disciple or any apostle that truly had tons and tons of knowledge and doctrine, it was Paul. Yet more often than not, Paul, he wouldn't come in excellency of speech. He wouldn't come with all of his knowledge or how much he had studied. He came with the simplicity of the love of Christ. And that's what we should be known for as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, we'll skip around this chapter a little bit. Verse 1 tells us, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. So for those within Christianity that they like to lean on the gifts, they like to lean on tongues, Paul says, if you have all the tongues, both of men and of angels, and you don't have love, what do you sound like, right? A clanging brass, right? A clanging cymbal or a sounding brass. Just a loud horn out of nowhere. That's what you sound like if we do not possess the selfless love of Christ. Then in verse 2, and though I have the gift of prophecy... And understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And though I have faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. 
If you could understand every doctrine out there, if you had the gift of faith in such incredible ways that you could literally remove mountains, but yet you do not possess the selfless love of Jesus Christ and it's being shown to others, you're nothing. You're nobody within the kingdom of God. Verse 3, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Verse 8 tells us, love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Where there's tongues, they will cease. Where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Verse 13, and now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Again, is this what we're chasing within our walk and relationship with the Lord? Forget chasing all the other doctrines. That's very important. But if love and displaying the love of Christ is not the tip of the spear of what we're seeking and chasing after, it will profit us nothing. We may get puffed up. We may get hard and rigid and difficult and become dead right in our knowledge. But it will profit us nothing. In heaven, what we will need, it's not tongues, it's not knowledge, it's not prophecies. In heaven, it's the love of Christ that will continue for all of eternity. Chuck Smith, he says, I've come to the conclusion that it's more important that I have the right attitude than that I have the right answers. If my answers are wrong, God can change them in a moment by the revelation of his truth. But oftentimes it takes a whole lifetime to change an attitude. Better that we have the right attitude and the wrong answers than the right answers and the wrong attitude. Remember that the next time you get into an argument with someone over some doctrinal position or issue. Now, is Chuck speaking about the doctrines, orthodoxy, or right answers about who Jesus is and sin and salvation? Not at all. What he's speaking about, as we've already gone through the distinctives of the priority of God's word, as we've already gone through the distinctives of the centrality of Jesus Christ, is that oftentimes as believers, if we're honest, our arguments are about secondary topics. And this is where we lose people or reveal just how prideful and how unloving we are. We want to argue about the gifts of the Spirit, We want to argue about Calvinism. We want to argue about predestination. We want to argue about freedom, right, and our choice and God's giving us this will. These are all the secondary topics we want to argue about, right? Should men still have curly hair on the sides or not, right? Can we eat pork or not? These are the things that we start arguing about and going in circles. And it's no coincidence to me that Paul mentions this truth in each of his pastoral epistles. We'll look at this quickly. You could go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter 1 verse 3. He tells his son in the faith, Timothy, as I urged you 
When I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. So again, the goal that Paul gives to Timothy is to focus on the proper doctrines, and it's all out of love from a pure heart. He doesn't say, hey, battle fables and endless genealogies or equip yourself to go against them or start arguing. He says, don't give heed to them. Avoid them. Don't listen to them. Because what these disputes cause is just disputes and not godly edification. Then he tells us the people who desire this, verse 6, are those which having strayed have turned aside to idle talk. Wasteful talk, pointless talk. They desire to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Oftentimes, the person that's constantly wanting to argue about secondary topics within the faith and within Scripture want to become teachers, but they have no clue what they're talking about, especially because they're not displaying the selfless love of Jesus Christ. You could just write these down. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, Paul tells Timothy once again, but reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself towards godliness. Instead of going back and forth in these disputes, reject it, push it to the side, give it no time, and now give your time to grow in godliness. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Verse 23, he tells them once again, But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. They generate strife. All of your political conversations at Thanksgiving, right? What have they generated? Did you have someone say, you know what? I'm changing my vote next November, right? No, they just generate strife. Turkey gets thrown across the room, right? Words get said. It's just foolish and ignorant disputes. What should we do as believers, as pastors? We should avoid them. That person that always wants to, uh, to create these foolish and ignorant disputes, go the other way. Avoid them. Know that they generate strife. They don't generate godly edification. They don't generate godly maturity because the true mark of a mature believer is the selfless love of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus tells us. They will all know that you are my disciples because of how great you are at foolish and ignorant disputes. No, it's by the love that you have for one another. One, one last time here in these pastoral epistles in Titus chapter 3 a couple pages to the right. Again, now he goes even further telling Titus what to do with people that constantly want to argue and bring division and what ifs about all of these other secondary topics. Titus chapter 3 verse 9. Once again here. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and striving about the law. Why, Titus? Because they are unprofitable and useless. 
They're unprofitable and useless. Even though you think that you're smart, even though you think you're so wise, it's wasting time. Then in verse 10, he tells Titus, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Warn that person once. Hey, bro, we're just wasting time here. This has nothing to do with edifying or growing the believers. We're not growing in love here. Warn them again, and after that, you got to reject them. Send them away, knowing that person is warped and sinning and being self-condemned. Chuck Smith, he says, As we minister to a fellowship or to a group, whether it's a home Bible study or whether it's a church of 10,000 people, we need to make sure that one of our major themes is love. That love needs to be demonstrated by our own actions, our attitudes, and our life. May everyone see the love of Christ manifested in us. Just like Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 verse 12, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. We need to constantly seek to be understanding and compassionate, seeing people in and through the compassion of Jesus Christ. How do you see people? Do you see them with the love and compassion of Jesus Christ? Is your love being an example to other believers? It's always a great question. What would our church look like if every single person that came to church acted just like you? How many servants would we have at church, right? How many meals would we have at church? How loving? Would we have any time of greeting, right? How long would we fellowship afterwards? What would our prayer meeting look like? Our kids' ministry look like? Our service would look like? Our love needs to be an example, a good example, right? Not a bad example. A good example to the believers. And it's, it's simple. So many things within the faith are so simple. If you do not love people, if you don't like being around people, then you're not called to minister to people. If all you love about the ministry is teaching or lording over people, you're not called to be anywhere near the ministry. A shepherd likes to be around sheep, and sheep like to be around their shepherd. We've spoken before at the differences of a shepherd and a butcher, right? Both of them are around sheep, but for very different reasons, right? They look at the sheep with different eyes. Hey, I'm around the sheep. I smell like the sheep, but it's to protect them and care for them. The other guy, he's looking at the sheep. I can make pork. I can make chops out of this, right? Rack of lamb out of this. We could roast the leg out of this. I can make wool with this. Two separate views of the sheep. And if you think you're called to be in the ministry and you don't have a love or care for God's people, look somewhere else. You're not called to be in the ministry. In John chapter 10, yeah, let's turn there. John chapter 10, Jesus, he tells us what a good shepherd looks like. And a good shepherd has and possesses selfless love. It's a great cue for all the men here, all of the husbands here, all of the young men here, future husbands. If you're a man, God has put you on this earth to die for other people. Your time, your hobbies, your giftings, your life, it's supposed to be a life of service. John chapter 10, verse 11, 
Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. Do we care? Again, men, do you care about your flock, your family, your wife, your children? Do you see them? Do you see the enemy coming, sin knocking at their door? And do you step in there willing to sacrifice how much they like you, your friendship with them, how much they love you, right? Because you're willing to sacrifice yourself in there and save them and protect them. Or do you see trouble coming and you say, ah, I don't care. I'm just going to go watch the news. I'm just going to go watch my sports. I'm just going to go do my hobbies. That's the difference between a good shepherd and a bad shepherd or a hireling. With the men, we were looking at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2 through 4. Same idea here. Paul, he tells the other elders, he tells them, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And the chief example is by demonstrating the selfless love of Christ. And one of the ways that we grow in truly loving others is to show compassion to other people. And the only way we'll be able to show compassion to other people is to understand where they are coming from. To be able to take a step back, push aside all of the differences, push aside all the things you don't like, push aside all of the truth that you may know, and now take a step back and say, Lord, where are they coming from? What has their childhood been like? Have you ever met someone you're like, man, I don't know if I could get along with this person. Oh, this person acts like this. And then you meet a family member. You meet their mom or dad. And now all of a sudden you understand where they're coming from. And you have much more compassion. We need to do that with other people. Chuck Smith, he says, I found that the key to compassion is understanding. Ezekiel 3 verse 15. Ezekiel says, I sat where they sat. I believe a very good thing to try to do, at least in your own mind, is to put yourself in the other man's shoes. Put yourself in their life situation. Sit where they are sitting. See it from their side. We're always seeing things only from our side, but try and look at it from their side and their perspective. So important within marriage, so important within parenting. Your children may be freaking out at a situation at school. And you're thinking, who cares if that other little girl doesn't like you, right? Her loss. She's 12 years old. Who cares, right? But for them and their life, that's all that matters. Their whole perspective is on this one friendship or this one situation. Chuck Smithy continues. He says, you can't minister to anyone unless you feel compassion towards them. As a pastor, you're going to have people in your congregation that you don't like. You would like to kill them. That's what Chuck Smith, not me, right? He says, but you need to have understanding. Get to know them. Get to understand where the thorn is in their life. What's irritating them? 
And if you seek to understand them, then as you have compassion, you can truly minister to them. How many times do you read in the scriptures, and Jesus was moved with compassion? When he saw the needs of the people, he then understood the need. He didn't need someone to testify to them because he knew what was in man. It was because he had compassion. So seek to understand. It, it happens in youth camps. It happens even in trips to Israel. I remember Sandy Adams, she was talking about a trip to Israel where this lady, she was just, she was just bitter the whole trip. She was just bitter and angry, making the trip terrible for everybody else. And he just had it. He couldn't understand it anymore. And then finally, instead of just blowing up on the lady or sending her packing, sending her back home, right? He said he sat down with her and he sat and he tried to talk with her. And after talking, after loving on her, after seeing what was going on, he found out that, the, that tomorrow, the next day, was going to be the anniversary of the death of her husband. And the reason she was so angry, the reason she was so bitter is because she was just hurt. She was just sad. And after he cared for her, after he prayed with her, after he loved on her, he said that all of a sudden, she completely changed. Now she was joyful. She was good. She was happy with everyone. Chuck Smith, he talks about a story how he used to love going to youth camps and that the youth counselors, the kids they were fed up with, the kids that, right, ataki, right, they, they couldn't handle them anymore. They would bring them to Chuck. And what he would do is he would take them to the snack shop Hey, what kind of soda you want? Hey, what kind of snacks you want? And then he would start loving on the kids. And then he'd find out, hey, the dad's not in the picture. The mom's not really a believer. And the kid has nobody that cares about him. You love on them. You try to understand them, where they're coming from. And then now you can have compassion towards them. In John 15, we could turn there. Most of us know that the life of a believer is all about abiding in Jesus Christ. And if we abide in Jesus Christ, we will bear fruit. If we're not abiding in Him, if we're not plugged into Jesus and into His Word, we won't bear any fruit. Now, we look at John 15, verse 8 and 9. He says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Then we jump to verse 16 and 17. And Jesus tells his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. These things I command you that you love one another. One of the keys to be able to possess the power and ability to love others is to abide in the love of Jesus Christ. To always be mindful of everything he's done for us. How he died for us. How he resurrected for us. How he lived the perfect life for us. Consider all that he's done and the great love that Christ has put on display for us. Abide in that so that then you can go and bear fruit, so that you can go and love one another. We know that Galatians 5.22 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is, is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. 
And if we are to bear much fruit, the key fruit that we should be bearing is love. It's the agape love of Jesus Christ. Mike Foch, he says, God has not granted authority for us to use it to tear people down. God has granted authority, especially for those in pastoral positions, to edify and build others up. This is what Christ wants from the people that he puts in authority and in power and in position. Even in the difficult parts of ministry, even in the times where you need to correct someone, it should always be rooted and grounded in Ephesians 4, verse 15, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth, but in love. And when we do this, we grow up. We grow up in all things into him who is the head, which is Christ. You want to grow within your walk. You want to grow within the faith. You want to be a leader or a pastor one day. Grow in the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. That you learn to love people even though they've done nothing to deserve it. They can't give it back to you. They can't send it back your way. Learn to love the unlovable. And the love of Christ, it's not just always applauding someone. Or always telling them they're right. Or always telling them, hey, it's okay what you're going through. But the true love of Jesus Christ, it's loving the unlovable. But correction is also involved in it. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. That's why as believers, our definitions need to come from the word of God. The world's definition of love does not have rebuke or chastening anywhere near it. The world's definition of love is not only do you agree with what I tell you to agree with in my life, but you also need to champion it and tell others the same thing, right? You need to wear the same pin. You need to put the same post. You need to do everything that I tell you to do. That's not what biblical love looks like. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, it tells us, My son... Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Now, whenever we give biblical correction, we should follow Jesus' example. We talked about this at the men's conference as well. Throughout the book of Revelation, whenever Jesus rebukes a church, he first gives them a commendation. He tells them what they're doing right, what they're doing well. And then afterwards, he gives them the correction. This is where you're failing. This is where you need to grow. Once again, it's rooted and grounded in love. There's that old proverb, you can catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. Why you'd want to catch flies, I don't know. I'm trying to kill them all, right? But it, right, you can catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. You're trying to correct someone, you're trying to speak to someone, perhaps at your workplace, at your job, with your spouse, with your kids, blowing up on them, telling them everything that they're doing wrong, being vinegar, it's not going to win them over. Proverbs 15 verse 1 tells us, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Pastor Raz used to say, he says, you could be right, but you could be dead right. 
You may be right. You may have won the argument, but you just lost the week. You lost the dinner. You lost your night's sleep, right? Now you're sleeping on the couch because you were so right and telling her how you were right. We need to have it all rooted and grounded in love. We could think of John, the Apostle John. His nickname, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he reminds us in 1 John chapter 4, we can turn there. 1 John chapter 4, and we spoke about this a little bit at the end of last week. How if we truly love God, we're going to obey his word, we're going to love others, and we're going lo- to walk in the light. We're going to obey his word, we're going to love others, and we're going to walk in the light. And John, his nickname, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he reminds the church and all of us in 1 John 4, 20 and 21, that if we love God, we need to be loving God's people. That if we're saying, hey, I'm going to heaven when I die, I'm not going to hell when I die, we need to be loving God's people. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, it tells us, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Can't get away from it. We need to learn how to love our brothers and sisters. Love for God means that we must have a love for our brothers and our sisters. You don't need to be best friends with every single believer out there, but you at least need to have a genuine love and care for them. As we spoke about earlier, having compassion for them, the only way you're going to have compassion for them is to understand or at least try to understand where they are coming from. Ephesians 5 verse 2 tells us to walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us. Again, the way that we're to love others, it's not as the world loves. You scratch my back, I scratch yours, right? You do me this favor, then I'll do, you, then I'll do this favor for you. No, we are to love as Christ has loved us. If you're still there in 1 John, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, it tells us, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Love, it's an action, and true love comes with a cost. You can't really love someone or love something unless you're putting investment into it. Whether it's money, whether it's time, whether it's your emotions, your care, time in your mind. If you give it nothing, it truly is not loving it. You're just pushing it to the side. You're kicking the can down the road. But if we're to love our brothers and sisters, it needs to be in action. And perhaps you're realizing how you are greatly lacking in this selfless love of Christ. As I have learned, as I've been convicted of in studying 
We need to be reminded it's an actionable love. Jesus didn't just love us with his words. Jesus loved us so much he stepped down from heaven, from perfection, and he walked among us. Died as a criminal and then resurrected for us. Truly loving people within the church, actions need to be attached with it. That's why it's always so strange for me for people to say they love God and love brothers and sisters, but they never want a fellowship. They never want to be around them. They never want to hang out with other believers. It's just a little perplexing to me. That's all, right? If that's you, I encourage you to pray scriptural prayers. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12, it tells us, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all. Pray that prayer. Lord, I pray. Lord, please help me and may you increase and abound the love that I have for one another. Another biblical prayer that we can pray, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Lord, I don't know how to love this brother or sister. I can't understand them at all, Lord. I'm completely lost. Lord, would you teach me how I can love them? Lord, would you help me to understand them? Lord, help me to have compassion for them. Help me to love them. One last portion of scripture, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Colossians 3, verse 12 tells us, Therefore, as the elect of God. Who's the elect of God? That's us, right? So this is, this is for you, this is for me, right? Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another... Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. D.C. McClaslin, he writes Our Daily Bread, and he tells us, Do we begin each day by acknowledging Jesus Christ as the person in charge, the one whom we work for? Do we take time to clothe ourselves with the attitudes that would please Him? Am I wearing what people are most longing to see? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and love? If so, I will be dressed for success in God's service. What are you putting on as you get out? Are you putting on bitterness? Are you putting anger? I know how much driving in Miami, right? You put on defensiveness, right? You get ready. You think your car's armored, or at least your heart and mind is armored. But are we putting on kindness, tender mercy? And then Paul tells us in verse 14, hey, above tender mercy, 
greater than kindness, greater than humility or meekness or long-suffering is this agape love of Jesus Christ. It's this selfless and sacrificial love of Christ. In the Greek, the bond of perfection is speaking of something that unites or binds two things together. You can think of your tendons or your ligaments, how they attach your muscle to the bone. And if you've ever had a torn tendon or a torn ligament, what happens to that muscle? Whoop! It's useless. You can't do anything with it. And if we don't put on the bond of love, we really can't do anything for the kingdom of God. We can't do anything within our marriages, within our family, within our church, within our culture, within our neighborhoods, our communities. We can only have all of these beautiful virtues held together by the selfless love of God in us. We're not going to be able to be humble. We're not going to be able to be kind or merciful. We're not going to be able to forgive others Unless we put on this bond of perfection, like a belt tying everything around us, this selfless love of God in us. As we looked at in 1 Corinthians 13, all the gifts of the Holy Spirit without the selfless love of God in us just make us loud and obnoxious. That's all it does. We become nothing and it profits us absolutely nothing if we do not bear the fruit of the Spirit, which is the true mark of the disciple of Jesus Christ. And what's the fruit of the Spirit? The selfless love of Jesus Christ. May that be on display in each and every one of us. And I know we're blessed. It is. It's a mark of our church. The different pastors, this past two weeks we've been blessed. We've had Pastor Randy Cahill. We've had Pastor Tony with us. We don't have to bribe them to come down here, right? They're excited to come down. They're always blessed being with you guys. Because if I'm not putting love on display, if you're not putting love on display, then it's not going to be that exciting to be around here. But if we're putting on display the love of Jesus Christ, the truth and doctrine of God's Word, and the true love of Jesus Christ together... People, they're going to want to be around that. People, they're going to want to be around you if you're displaying that love of Jesus Christ. Now, they may hate you because of the doctrine of Jesus Christ, but we should always have the love of Jesus Christ put on display because that's the mark of a true believer of Jesus Christ. So, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll close, have the worship team come up, and then we'll close in song. Lord, we ask you, Lord, we, we pray those prayers from First Thessalonians, Lord. May you help us, Lord. Help us to abound and increase in love, Lord. Lord, would you help us, Lord? Would you teach us how to love others, Lord? Whether it's a family member that we don't understand, Lord. Lord, whether it's a co-worker, whether it's a friend, an acquaintance, Lord. Lord, for the unbelievers out there, Lord, those that... Their whole life, Lord, their whole identity is based in their sin. God, help us to understand them, Lord. Help us to have compassion on them, Lord. Jesus, I'm reminded how you would have compassion, Lord, for sinners, for tax collectors, Lord. How you would love on them and just simply tell them, go and sin no more. Lord, help us to have that type of love for one another, Lord. First and foremost, for you, Second, for the body of believers and, Lord, for the world around us, Lord. Help us to have compassion on all the unbelievers that we see, Lord. 
all of those that are scattered around in this life like sheep without a shepherd. Lord, help us to give them the good news of the gospel, Lord. The good news that the King of kings and Lord of lords loves them with a love that they can't imagine, a love that they cannot fathom, Lord. And Lord, for those of us, Lord, that perhaps we have not been abiding in that love, Lord, perhaps we're thinking that we're owed your love because of how much work we do or how much we've been serving or how good we've been acting. Lord, help us to comprehend truly what your grace means, Lord. How your love for us doesn't change, Lord. Lord, how it's not dependent on our devotionals, Lord, or what we do for you, Lord. Just the selfless love that you have for us, God. Help us to dwell in that. Help us to abide in that, Lord. And help us to put that on display for everyone around us, God. So, Lord, we just love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, let's all stand. We'll close in song. If you need prayer, there'll be pastors up front.